0: Okay, let's go ahead and uh, get started here, so those that are joining us by live stream don't wonder uh, where we are. I want to welcome everybody and welcome those that are watching online and also those of you that might watch the video. We get a couple hundred people that watch the video after, sometime during the, 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 the next week following our service, so I want to welcome you as well. And today, this is part 30 in our series through What Lies Ahead, Uh, We've covered a lot of ground, but we've still got quite a bit of ground to cover. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about what lies ahead, and uh, as uh, Ann reminded me this morning, we've talked about how 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. So if you belong to a church or attend a church that never talks about end times prophecy, you're part of the 84% club. Uh, You go to a church that only teaches 84% of the Bible, but we believe in preaching the whole counsel of God. and uh, certainly in times like these, it's good to kind of think about what God's plan of the ages has in store for us. Now, uh, today, we've dedicated the entire hour, uh, as we do about every four to six weeks, to a Q&A, and uh, so I've gotten a few questions uh, texted to me already, uh, but let me remind you, for those of you that are watching online, how you can do that. If you want to text me any questions throughout the next 45 minutes, I'll try to get to those as we have have time. And you can see the number uh, on the screen there, 719-822-4579. And like I said, I mentioned this last week, so I've already got a couple of questions that are kind of waiting in in line here. Also, I want to remind you that we're loosely following the outline in my book, What Lies Ahead. If you don't have that, they're on the back table or if you're watching online, you can pick those up at uh, notbyworks.org. So with that, let me uh, open the floor to questions. Where's uh, Jeffrey? Oh, right here. Well, you were holding that uh, bow like it was a gun. I was a little worried. So when we're going to try to, oh, I was going to have him do it. Since you're doing the sound, sorry. Sorry. I just, I like him better. (laughs) Um, So, uh, as we've talked about before we want to make sure we capture the questions as much as possible on the video on the sound anyway so uh, he's going to hold the mic and and hold it re- he, i told him to hold it really close to your mouth because especially if you're in the back even though this is a really good mic it doesn't always pick up from the back uh, so speak cl- loudly and uh, and clearly and that way we can capture it on here uh, so who has a question to start with judy
1: So last week, JB, you talked about the uh, fullness of the Gentiles. Um, correct? A misimpression I may have had in my own um, understanding. I was taught growing up that you know, but the fullness of the Gentiles was when that one last Gentile accepted Jesus, and we were like, okay, who are you? Let me shake you. Accept Jesus, and we can all get out of here. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> what is the wrong interpretation of, of that, and how would you explain it
0: better? Great. So the question is about the times of the Gentiles. I think that came through on the tape, but we talked about that last week uh, in, as we were finishing up our study of the, of the characterizations of the tribulation. So Judy mentioned that sometimes you, you hear people talk about the times of the Gentiles ending when that last Gentile comes to faith. Well, I guess in a manner of speaking you could say that, uh, but we do know from Scripture when that will be. So the times of the Gentiles ends at the Second Coming because it's at the Second Coming when Christ comes back and takes the throne and Jerusalem is no longer under Gentile domination and control. So from the time of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed all the way through the present age, through the tribulation and the reign of the Antichrist up until the Battle of Armageddon and Christ comes back, as you see on the screen here, to take the throne. That is the times of the Gentiles. So I guess it would be uh, possible to kind of think about it in terms of at the end of the seven-year tribulation, just prior to the time when Christ comes back, whoever that last Gentile on earth is who gets saved, maybe maybe that's the end. So, so they're not mutually exclusive, but... We, it's not a mystery. It's not something that we have to wonder. Well, maybe the times of the Gentiles could end today if that Gentile get. We know that won't happen because the the biblical uh, teaching on the times of the Gentiles uh, is that it ends when Christ comes back and takes the throne. Now we correlated that uh, concept uh, uh, of times of Gentiles with Paul's statement about the fullness of the Gentiles uh, in Romans 11. And so that's probably where that comes from, the fullness of the Gentiles. Uh, you know, in fact, it's in, let's look at it. It's in Romans 11, about 25 or so. Let me find the exact verse. So Romans, yeah, it is verse 25. Paul says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So that, that's a different way of characterizing the times of the Gentiles, like we looked at last week, uh, but he says, uh, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be delivered, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and so forth and so on. So Jesus says in Luke 21, in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, the uh, something similar in Luke 21, uh, let's see, it's near the end, here, let's find that. So remember, the Olivet Discourse, uh, as we've talked about, is Jesus teaching uh, the night before he was betrayed in the garden on Thursday night. On Wednesday night, he's atop the Mount of Olives. The disciples ask him, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so he begins to outline everything that's going to take place during that final seven years leading up to the return of Christ. And as part of that, at least in Luke's account, he says in uh, verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So, Paul is speaking more in terms of evangelistically, and, and which is what Romans was all about. It was to preach the gospel to those who have never heard. We read about that in Romans 15, in Rome specifically. Jesus is speaking more prophetically in terms of a God's divine time markers, and based on Daniel and several other passages, we know that the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled when Jerusalem is no longer under Gentile domination and control. And that doesn't happen until, as Jesus is talking about in the Olivet discourse, the Son of Man comes back. Remember Matthew's account says, uh, then the Son of Man will come in all of his glory and sit on his throne and separate the sheep from the goats and so forth. So, so yeah, that's the clarification there about Does that help? It does.
1: I yeah. always thought it was that's when the rapture would come.
0: No no, 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 <laughs> no.
1: Gentiles saved.
0: Yeah. No, in fact, I don't have that chart up here because I just kind of chose selected charts that might be helpful depending on the question. But last week I showed a chart that showed, whereas the, I think I do have, let's see here, whereas the tribulation period is uh, just that seven years right here, which is what the Olivet Discourse is all about. The times of the Gentiles, you have to back up and it's actually not even reflected on the screen because this this chart starts with the church age, well, with Calvary and then the church age after that. But the times of the Gentiles goes all the way back to the d- destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So, But it does not end until the second coming the way the tribulation does. Good question. All right, somebody else. Anybody with a question? Jeff.
1: So we were going through... Some of the Russ Miller um, DVD and uh, presentations, and he has the view that the uh, the tribulation is sort of a bookend like the Garden of Eden, in that it is through the the earthquakes and the the heat, it sets up this this vapor barrier, and it uh, you know the tectonic plates are moving such that that basically. Even though it's a it's a judgment period, this judgment actually is a sign of mercy that brings everything back to its original state. So even though we see it sometimes just as a sort of a negative, I mean, obviously we want we want justice. But uh, I really was intrigued by that. What's your take on on that view?
0: Who was it that you found? Russ oh. Miller. Oh, Russ Miller. I've heard of him. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's very possible. It's speculative. I, don't, I can't think of any passage of Scripture that specifically addresses the means by which the earth returns to uh, more longevity of life and so forth. But we do know, and we're going to get to this uh, in the coming weeks when we talk about the millennium, we do know that when Christ comes back and takes the throne and you see it on the screen here on the far right, the Messianic Kingdom, that first thousand years is on the older, the existing earth, and things are going to get better. And of course, a thousand years is a long time. We only have 6,000 years of human history right now, right, in, in terms of all of time, space, and matter. Time began 6,000 years ago. And so, uh, you think of all that's happened just in the last thousand years from our perspective. So a thousand years, when Christ comes back, is a long time, and over that thousand years, we do know, for example, that people will once again begin to live, you know, six, seven, eight hundred years of age. Uh, Isaiah tells us that if someone dies at the age of a hundred, they'll be considered an infant. Um, so the Bible is de- there. We go. Sorry, I just got to make sure he's not frowning at me and and smirking, thinking, "Man, what in the world is this guy talking about?" Verbal cues. I like to see the verbal cues. If he's going, "Amen, yes," you know, then that, then I'm on track. Um, so the, we know that the Bible does come full circle uh, from the pre-fall Edenic state all the way back to, I'm trying to see if I have that chart here, uh, all the way back to, you know, uh, once again, you know, goes through depravity, destroying the earth, and people live less, and the earth itself is is being destroyed. But when Christ comes back, a lot of those things begin to get mended. And so that's why you see uh, obviously under Christ's rule with a rod of iron, no uh, accidental death, no tragedies of that sort. You have people living a longer life. One of the questions that was texted to me that I'm going to get to in a moment talks about how you know the animals will be no longer predatory toward one another and so forth. Uh, so I don't think I have that chart, I was hoping I did, but in any event. Uh, so, so I think as w- during that thousand years, even though the earth itself is still under the curse of sin, and the earth will never self-correct, there are certain things that that will be better. And is it possible that the events of devastation that are taking place during the tribulation are preparing the way for more productivity from the earth? Certainly, that's possible. Yeah, that that's very possible. So, because all of this is not a surprise to God, He's preparing the way. All along, so he's coming at it from multiple angles and and working all things together. So, someone else with a question. All right. Well. Oh, yeah, Fred. Wait. Wait for the mic so we can catch it on the (coughs) tape here. So,
1: before uh, at some time you've mentioned that uh, (coughs) at the point of the rapture, the. Beginning of the, the uh, tribulation doesn't start immediately. It seems like that would be. Uh, I know. I know that the uh, the uh, Antichrist. That's a sign of peace tree. But couldn't that all be in God's timing, just instantaneous? There's several things happening. He takes out the spirit and takes it with us, and when we leave, well, we're out of here, and then
0: leaves a void and that's when the bad things begin to happen so the question is the timing (coughs) of the rapture relative to the start of the tribulation Uh, as you see on the screen here the rapture puts an end to the church age Um, it's a mystery as paul talks about in first corinthians 15 and the whole church age is a mystery as paul talks about in ephesians so it was a intercalation in God's program with Israel. God outlined and revealed through the prophet Daniel a 490-year plan, beginning with the decree of Artaxerxes in 444 BC, running all the way up till the kingdom comes. But in the midst of that, not in the midst, but near the end, after 483 years of that plan, God presses pause. And this is all based on Daniel's prophecy alone. You don't have to even read the New Testament to see this gap of time that Daniel's text demands itself there was a delay that we are currently living in, often called a parenthesis or an intercalation or uh, just a, Paul, Paul called it in the verse we read a moment ago, the blind, a period of blindness for Israel. So the church is now center stage. Then God will rescue the church before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and we that puts an end to the church age. So I think you're correct that after the rapture, there will certainly be immediately chaos and all kinds of things. In my uh, DVD, one minute after the rapture, I talk about 10 things that will be true in the immediacy of the rapture. But the tribulation period, obviously, is a technical time, variously referred to as the great day of the Lord's wrath, the day of the Lord's wrath, the time of Jacob's trouble, the overflowing scourge, the 70th week of Daniel. Jesus talks about it. He even quotes Daniel by name. That's a seven-year period that has a very exact starting point according to Scripture and a very exact ending point. And that seven-year period does not begin until the signing of the peace treaty according to Daniel 9.27. So because those are two events, the rapture and the signing of the treaty, by definition, there must be some length of time between them. Now, could that be days? Certainly. I mean, we we really don't know. It's completely speculative. Uh, My best guess is, but just correlating a lot of other passages of Scripture about things that happen in the lead up to the return of Christ, uh, and I outline these in uh, an appendix in the book called Sequential Order of End Times Events, and if you have the book, you can read that. It's got 30 or 40 things, starting with the rapture. So very important to remember, the rapture is the next great world event that starts God's prophetic time time clock ticking. In other words, there is no prophecy that must be fulfilled before the rapture. That's the doctrine of imminency. The Bible teaches that. Uh, We have a DVD called The Doctrine of Imminency, and we've talked about it, I think, in here uh, previously. I did, last week, I did a uh, a podcast on Christian Underground News Network, which I'm on every Tuesday, that uh, the the title of that podcast was uh, Why I Believe in a Pre-Trib Rapture, and we touched on imminency and that important doctrine. So if there were any prophecies that could occur before the rapture, then it's no longer imminent because we could wake up today and we could say, well, such and such a prophecy hasn't happened, therefore I know the rapture can't happen. Well, the rapture could happen. That's the definition of imminency. Could happen at any time. It could have happened yesterday, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1900 years ago. Uh, From the moment God uh, revealed it in Scripture through the pen of Paul in the mid-first century, and any time thereafter, it could have happened. Uh, but it hasn't. But anyway, it's imminent. So, so once the rapture happens, there are certain things that will unfold uh, naturally as a consequence of that. But the tribulation doesn't start until the signing of the peace treaty. Notice I say the Antichrist is unveiled. always have to clarify. What I mean by that is according to God's prophetic uh, picture, It's at the point of the signing of the peace treaty that it can be known by those who know scripture who the Antichrist is. The world alive on earth at that time, after the rapture, during the tribulation, will be deceived for three and a half years, and the Jews will be deceived for three and a half years. Uh, They won't recognize that he is the Antichrist until the midpoint when he breaks the peace treaty walks into the temple declares himself God demands that everyone in the world worship him and take the mark of the beast and at that point that's when Jesus says when the Jews see that they need to head for the hills flee for your life this is gonna he's turning his terror on you so I don't mean by Antichrist unveiled that he's unveiled necessarily to everyone on earth at that point but according to God's prophetic timetable that's when we'll know he is unveiled so back to Fred's question um, there's no there are no events of the uh, tribulation period that will begin instantaneously with the rapture. Because, um, unless, and this I guess is theoretically possible but not logically possible, unless at the precise moment of the rapture the Antichrist is in the Oval Office or wherever the UN office signing a treaty at that exact same second, then theoretically they could begin together. But it just, when you have two events spoken of uh, and they're not the same event, By definition, there's a length of time between them. Uh, Most scholars uh, think, and this is where I was going a moment ago and I got sidetracked talking about the Antichrist being unveiled and the imminency of the rapture, but I really believe when you put the pieces together, we're probably talking about a period of a number of months, that in the chaos that ensues after the rapture, uh, nations from the north uh, come together and conspire to uh, overtake Israel. Remember, Israel has been the coveted Holy Land in three different religions, and it's going all the way back to the ancient Near East, to the time of Abraham, obviously, and Moriah, it's been been coveted land. Uh, And so in the chaos, uh, nations from the north led by Russia, according to Ezekiel 38 and 39, will try to come in and take over Israel. A Western alliance will form, uh, according to Daniel, that comes against that Northern alliance, and, and this is speculative, but it's my best guess that the leader of that Western alliance is the man who then... And by the way, at that, that's called the Battle of Gog and Magog when the nations from the north come down. Uh, the scripture tells us God intervenes supernaturally and protects uh, Israel from that uh, aggressor, that northern aggressor. And, uh, but this Western alliance and the leader of it takes credit and, and, and it's my best guess that the leader of that Western alliance is then propelled to worldwide fame because he stopped World War III, he solved the Middle East peace crisis, and you know, even uh, Paul talks about when they're saying peace and safety, that's when the day of the Lord's about to come. So they're, at the beginning of this tribulation, they're signing this peace treaty, and everybody thinks we've entered this time where there is no longer any immediate threat of war in Israel. That's why it's called protection. Now, don't misunderstand, as we talked about last week, the tribulation as a whole, that seven-year period, is filled with devastating outpouring of God's wrath, the sealed trumpet and bold judgments, also the outpouring of Satan's wrath. So this seven-year period constitutes the final cataclysmic cosmic battle leading up to the return of Christ when Christ comes back and ultimately makes all things new. So there's a lot going on during that seven years that the Bible talks about. But from a geopolitical standpoint, uh, World War Three or Four or whatever it might be by then, because we don't know. It sure looks like it's going to happen soon, but we can't say for sure that's the nature of imminency. Um, but whatever that global battle is at that point is averted, and it's averted by, in my best guess, the man who then becomes the Antichrist, and he's kind of viewed as a hero. Uh, but we know uh, prophetically that this antichrist is indwelt by satan the prince of demons he's ruling at satan's behest he's uh, doing what satan does which is killing and murdering and lying deceiving the whole world and uh, he's from satan's perspective god is already outpouring his wrath the sealed judgments are the wrath of god because a lot of people think that the wrath doesn't officially start till later that's why you get into mid-trib and pre-wrath and partial and all these aberrant views of the rapture, which I addressed last week on that podcast, but but Revelation 6 could not be clearer that with the first seal who is the unveiling of the Antichrist, the rider on the white horse, by the time you get to the end of chapter 6 and the seals, they're already hiding from the wrath. Revelation 6, I think it's verse 15, says hide us from the wrath of God that has come upon the whole earth. So the wrath begins right at the beginning of the tribulation. And so there's all kinds of Uh, death and destruction and devastation taking place on the earth, but it's a period during which Israel as a nation is uh, in a uh, very tenuous agreement with this world leader, the tyrant, uh, for protection. But then he breaks that at the midpoint, and the last three and a half years are utter persecution, martyrdom, death and destruction. A number of Jews do survive, as do many from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, according to Revelation 7, by the end of the tribulation. That's the reason Jesus said he who endures to the end will be delivered into the kingdom. Um, People completely take that verse out of context and make it about personal eternal salvation. And they say you've got to endure to get to heaven, which makes Jesus a liar, because he said the moment you believe in me, you have eternal life. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life when you believe the gospel. It's a present possession. You have new life. (coughs) You are your citizenship is in heaven, you're eternally secure, no one can pluck you out of his hand. Uh, but what he's saying in the, all of the discourses is, is the one who survive all this and aren't martyred, they will be the ones to whom Jesus says when he comes back, come ye blessed of my father inherit the kingdom. In their physical mortal bodies they will enter the kingdom and repopulate the earth. Um, so, so that's kind of an overview of, of, of those three and a half years of pr- protection versus persecution. But Um, But back to Fred, just to finish out on his question, yeah, I think there will be all kinds of things happening immediately after the rapture, but the official commencement of the tribulation period does not begin until the signing of the peace treaty. So, yes, Hope? Is
1: there something about the Antichrist? having like wounds that would have been mortal that he recovered from? Or is that like figurative? No,
0: that's right from the book of Revelation. So he does re- die and then is resurrected, which is not something that should surprise us because Satan throughout history has often mimicked God's miracles. You know, we saw that all the way back in the days of the Pharaohs. So, um, so good question. Um, so let me take this question that was sent previously. It relates to Isaiah and and the uh, chapter eleven verse nine where Isaiah talks about uh, the the lion uh, and the lamb and the wolf and the baby and the cobra and all these animals uh, during this time when Christ is on the throne, once again not having a predatory relationship. And the the listener uh, or online viewer said uh, in Roman in uh, Isaiah eleven nine it says they will neither hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. So. The question is, how can that coexist with the reinstitution of the sacrifices? Well, that's actually a pretty easy one to think about. What Isaiah is talking about in that context is that animals won't go after animals. You know, the baby will play by the cobra's pit. We will snuggle up with a ferocious lion uh, at night, and we won't be worried about it. But that's, that's not to say that animals won't die. They will. The, the sacrificial system will be reinstituted, and uh, this, again, is a, once the rapture happens, we are once again back in, you know, the time when Israel is center stage. They're center stage for the seven-year tribulation, the completion of that 490-year plan. Then once the times of the Gentiles end, Israel is, you know, ruling the world with the true Messiah, the King of Israel, our Savior, Jesus Christ, on the throne. And the whole point of the sacrificial system, this is, this is what people don't understand. And I get it because we've been influenced by 1,800 years of amillennial teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that says we're in the kingdom now and, and Israel is gone, Israel is forsaken, there is no future for national Israel, the church has replaced Israel, all of that bad theology. Uh, but the, the, the teaching of scripture is that the sacrificial system, even in Israel's day, as Hebrews reminds us, was only a shadow of the substance to come. Nobody was saved on the Day of Atonement because the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. That was symbolic. People were saved and have been saved and will be saved until time shall be no more, always the same way, by faith. Remember, Abraham believed God and was justified, Genesis 15:6. Abraham and or, uh, Adam and Eve believed God in his p- provision of a sacrifice and they were saved. So salvation is always by faith and the sacrificial system in Israel was intended to illustrate that as a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the ultimate Lamb of God who would take the throne and take away the sin of the world. So the sacrifices never saved anybody. Uh, take, for example, the children of Israel um, on the banks of... Uh, the Jordan. I know this is before they in, went in and set up uh, uh, you know, the, the land, and a portion of the land, but they already had the tabernacle in the wilderness. But uh, everybody but two of that original generation died. And that doesn't mean, even though they didn't get to see the promised land, that they all went to hell, But it, because Moses was one of them, um, just for example. But it also does not mean that they all went to heaven. <laughs> because the Jews, like anybody else in the old, had to believe the gospel. And presumably some of them believed in Yahweh and His provision and, and the fact that He's the only one that can forgive sin and, and provide eternal life. Some of them didn't. Some of them just went along with, with through emotions and never really had personal faith. So entrance into heaven, to use that metaphor, we know that the ultimate dwelling place of the redeemed is the new heavens and the new earth, but we use heaven as a metaphor for the dwelling place of the eternally saved, is always based upon faith alone, faith alone. So so uh, so now, so that was what the purposes of the sacrifices were. So it's the same thing when Christ comes back. They're still symbolic. And it's going to be even a richer symbolism and a more meaningful symbolism and a more meaningful shadow of the substance. Because by that time, we've seen the real deal. So think of it as a shadow in the Old Testament. They could kind of va- vaguely see it, and if they read and listen to the prophets, they could kind of connect some dots, but until the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as He started His ministry, but until He is stretched out on the cross and said, it is finished, it was somewhat hazy. So now it's clear so now, when we, re, when we go through those sacrifices, it's even richer. But they're not intended to save anybody. People during the millennium that aren't saved, which will be those who get born during the millennium, because remember, at the beginning of the millennium, at the end of the, second, at the, end of the tribulation here, the, uh, everyone on earth who enters the kingdom is saved. Because there's only two groups of people on the earth at any given time, saved and unsaved. And when Jesus comes back, He divides the entire earth into sheep and goats, saved and unsaved, and the goats, He says, depart from Me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So they're in hell. That leaves the sheep, to whom He says, come ye blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom. So at the beginning of the, sec, of the kingdom, everyone on earth in their physical bodies is, is saved, is a believer. And over time, as they have children, their children, like every human being, will be born dead in their trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1. They'll need to be saved by faith, like everyone. Some will, some won't. And so by the end of the thousand years, you've got quite a a contingency, uh, or contingent, I should say, of unbelievers uh, who just chose to reject the gospel. Um, But, you know, during that millennial uh, phase, people will need to get saved uh, the same way. And uh, by faith, they won't be saved because of the sacrifices or because they went up, as the prophets talk about during the millennium, to Jerusalem with all the nations coming to worship the Savior, the King of Kings. Uh, but uh, they'll need to be saved by faith. So, so anyway, hopefully that answers the viewer's uh, question. There's no conflict or, um, you know, between the fact that there's going to be a sacrificial system and yet that is described as a time of unprecedented peace and righteousness and justice on the globe at that time anybody else yeah
1: so who sacrifices the raptured believers or the the people who came out of the tribulation
0: or both so the church everyone has a unique role to play in the kingdom the church the bride of christ is going to be co-reigning with christ and serving in leadership positions remember jesus said in the parable of the minas that if you're faithful in this present age when the king comes back, he's going to put you in charge of ten cities or five cities or whatever. So I think uh, some believers will be reigning in different parts. Jesus told the disciples they would sit on twelve thrones with him, so they're going to be a special position of uh, authority. Um, So I think we'll be overseeing it, but the temple will be basically once again under jewish control and it will be physical people in their physical bodies will be in our glorified bodies but people in their physical bodies that are executing the sacrifices and participating in them and so forth yeah judy and then Anne. let's go with Anne, and then judy
1: okay this um is a question about the end times but more about how it relates to today because this is fascinating and we've learned a lot And it's very encouraging to know that we are gone at the rapture, but as we're living out these days, we know people who aren't saved, some of them family, friends, and it can be um, very upsetting to think about them having to live through these times. And even though you witness to them, they still aren't saved yet. And so what can we do today to quiet hearts, to comfort us, during these times, knowing what's ahead, does that make
0: sense? Yeah, so I think, you know, obviously we all are burdened about the lost, and we should be. We need to pray for them, and we need to, at every opportunity, uh, share the gospel. And, you know, at Not By Works Ministries, we do that in a variety of ways. Uh, Every online order that we get, which we get a ton, gets a gospel track with a little note that says, hey, if you don't need this, please pass it on to someone who does. And so uh, I think we constantly need to be in this mode of reminding people that the only hope for salvation is Christ. Um, As far as things we might do for those left behind, there have been a lot of good suggestions. We have a To Whom It May Concern placard. There may be some on the back table. There was at one time, but if not, they're on our website at our online store that you uh, hang somewhere in your house uh, and so that it basically says to whom it may concern. If you show up at this house and it's empty, you know, that's because we've all been taken up to meet the Lord in the air and it gives the gospel and it explains what happens next and it tells people what to look forward to, not look forward to in a positive sense, but what they can expect in the coming uh, days and years and uh, and gives the gospel. Uh, I know of people that have put together uh, what they call basically rapture. Uh, packages or Rapture uh, packets or something where it, it does something similar, but it gives them even more information and, and shows them how once the Antichrist unleashes his terror, they're going to need to, you know, run and hide. They need to believe the gospel and so forth. Uh, so I think there are things we can do, um, but really, you know, the broader question underlying kind of your 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 question and your thoughts is just how should we then live in this present age? And that's what we've been talking about. Uh, on Wednesday nights with my series, What in the World is Going On? Uh, And uh, two weeks ago, I talked about biblical preparedness and showed unmistakably from Scripture how faith and preparedness are not mutually exclusive. They're both commanded. The Bible tells us to be prepared. It tells us he who sees trouble coming and prepares for it is wise. So I think we need to take obvious steps. If you're on the train track and you see the train coming and you hear the whistle, you need to get off Because God loves life and He wants us here so we can still make a difference in this world and we don't want to give up. But um, at the same time, we should strengthen our faith. We've been talking it through the book of Psalms here the last few weeks about how important it is to trust God. We're going to talk more about that today. So there's this synergy that takes place between, you know, as Proverbs says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. We understand ultimately if God calls us to, to, to go the way of many other persecuted believers for the last 2,000 years. If he calls us to step up on the guillotine or get on the train to Auschwitz, he's still God, just like the three Hebrew children in the fire. You know he's still God. We trust He'll deliver us, we believe he will, but if he's not if he doesn't, then we'll get to meet him you know, in that instant and he's still God, right? So we don't we're not part of this name and claim it where if we just believe hard enough, then we won't have to suffer. and and certainly I think you all have heard me say this enough that you know we we are not suggesting nor have I ever suggested and certainly the Bible doesn't suggest that belief in the rapture is some type of get out of jail free card that rescues us before we have to suffer not true at all and for 2,000 years many believers have suffered so the rapture is not a promise of scripture that says oh American Christians are going to be raptured before things get tough they're already tough for a lot of people throughout the world, and uh, all the rapture says, according to scripture, is that it rescues us before the day of the Lord's wrath. First Thessalonians one ten, first Thess five nine. We do not have to face the wrath of God because we're not under wrath. We've been rescued from wrath. We've been saved. We passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So I, I think it's just a matter of perspective, uh, and uh, and and you know, giving people the tools that they need to try to understand the gospel. You cannot argue someone into the faith. We cannot, you know, browbeat them into the faith. We wish we could in some ways, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But Paul says it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation, Romans 1.16. So we do have to preach a clear and accurate gospel. But once we've articulated the gospel, which is quite simple, you've heard me say you can say it in ten words or less, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the gospel. And once we've articulated that, then we just pray and leave it in the hands of the Holy Spirit that people will uh, believe the gospel and be born again. So, Somebody else? <laughs> oh, yeah, Judy. So, J.B.,
1: I've been sort of overwhelmed um, with the evil that has come into our world. I mean, I know it's always been there, but it just seems... Um, it's been overwhelming, and um, I'm angry about it. Um, So my question, I don't know if it's, my question is, these Luciferians, and you explained it in a couple messages ago, where you're like, they love death, they Mm -hmm. love death. Oh, yeah. Do they love, actually love anything? Like, do they love their own children? And if you're a child of a Luciferian, are you a Luciferian? Because I, I guess I'm trying to think, What could hurt these people? How do we get back at them? I know the Lord has justice planned for everyone, but I've just been trying to compartmentalize my anger as to what's
0: going on. Yeah, that's a great question. So let's talk about uh, the Luciferians uh, just for a moment. So I address these in great detail in a couple of places, just I'm mainly saying this for for listeners and people that watch the video later. My 18-part series, Spirit of the Antichrist, Uh, which is 18 videos, 14 hours, 10 discs. It's also available as a download. And then in this current series that we're in the midst of that's ongoing, what in the world is going on? I kind of spent some time outlining uh, who the Luciferians are. So in a nutshell, um, the Luciferians goes all the way back to the garden when Satan, who was kicked out of heaven, couldn't have heaven set his sights on the earth and is now the prince of this Uh, world, the God of this age, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Uh, He told God when God asked him where did he come from when he went to accuse Job. I come from to and fro, roaming to and fro on the earth. So this is his playground, and he's going to stop at nothing to try to take over the world. Now he knows that according to the biblical record he loses, and we know he loses, he just doesn't believe it. So several, and then in the 6,000 years since then, there are human co-conspirators who are working with Satan, his demons, which are one-third of the fallen angels. So demons, Satan, demons, human agents are all conspiring together to take over the world and defeat the creator of the universe. On the human side of that, uh, there are several layers and several tiers, but there are absolutely, according to both scripture, we could go back to Moloch and Astarte and all the ancient Near Eastern pagan gods and the things that those Luciferian worshiping uh, leaders were doing. David talks about it in Psalm 2, um, which I talked about a few weeks ago in our Psalm series. Uh, So from the biblical record, we know it's true. We also know it's true from the historical record. So does that mean that someone who's born into a family of top tier Luciferians that are actually worshiping Satan the way we worship God, is him or herself a Luciferian? Not because they were born into it, but most likely because they were raised in that culture and raised to be one they would be. Um, Luciferians are self-deceived. You know, they, In other words, deception is, is Satan's M.O., and so obviously he's deceived all of these people that are part of his conspiracy. Uh, in, uh, we saw how Saul Alinsky dedicated his book to Lucifer, and he said he can't wait to get to hell because they're my kind of people. That's what they think. They think they're on the side of good. They think in the Garden of Eden, Lucifer's the hero and God is the antagonist that God, as, as Satan lied and told Adam and Eve, that God was just trying to keep something from them. And thank goodness for this serpent who came in and rescued Adam and Eve from the tyranny of the Creator. So that their whole world is 180 degrees opposite of what the biblical uh, Christians are. So uh, your question is really, you know, who should we target in terms of our mental angst and just you know, praying imprecatory prayers, psalms against them. Uh, I think that's pretty easy. Uh, the, if you look around and you look at some of the quotes that I gave last Wednesday night uh, in the series and that I've given many times, there are a lot of people out there who are pretty evil. And I think, um, obviously, we hope that somehow the Spirit of God breaks through and maybe they uh, are convicted of their sin and believe the gospel. That's happened. Look at Paul. I mean, Paul was a murderous hater of Christians and. He met the Lord on the road to Damascus, so it's never too late for anybody. But in the meantime, uh, as uh, you know, as someone texted me after uh, one of our Wednesday night sessions, or not texted, but emailed me, one of our online listeners that I don't even know said, "So basically, what you're saying is trust the Lord, but keep the powder dry." And and I think that's pretty much the the, the approach. You know, these are bad people. You know, that Hitler in his regime, Hitler was one of Satan's top agents, and you look at some of the stuff that he wrote and and people related to him wrote it was he was taking orders directly from Satan and uh, or at least directly from the top tier Luciferians and uh, you know people that weren't prepared just stuck their head in the sand they're the ones that ended up on the trains the ones who saw it coming in the mid to late 30s and said I don't like where this is headed there was a mass exodus no pun intended but it was an exodus of Jews from Germany ahead of time they saw what was coming and they're still alive today, and their 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 progeny is still alive today. So I think there's a biblical mandate to kind of be aware, be prepared, but yet at the same time trusting God. So, uh, did I answer the gist of your question? I can't remember. Okay. All right. So we got time for one more. I'm gonna let me take this one here. If there's time, then I'll come back to you. Um, by the way, this this one happens to be someone who from whom with whom I'm related. Uh, I won't say who, but he used to spank me when I was a kid. So anyway, uh, he, he commented as we were talking about the rapture a moment ago, he commented, no, the rapture could not have happened yesterday because it didn't. Well, I meant from yesterday's perspective, if we if we were, it could have happened, but we know it didn't. But anyway, so will all the future blessings of Israel take place during the millennial reign of Christ? Um, without Clarifying exactly what he's getting at there, the yes, the millennial, the kingdom age, not just the millennium, but the kingdom age as a whole, is the consummation of all of God's plan of the ages. So by the end of the millennium, when you have that that second battle of Gog and Magog, totally different battle, totally different circumstances, it's just given the same name in Revelation 20. Uh, everything that God has said is going to happen will happen. The old earth is destroyed. Not renovated or repaired, but completely and utterly destroyed, recreated in sinless perfection, and we enter the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, and uh, there's no more night, there's no more sorrow, there's no more sin, there's no more sea. Remember, the sea is a is a symbolism of evil if you go back to the days of Noah. Uh, so, uh, So yeah, by that time, all of the blessings for not only Israel, but the whole world will have come to fulfillment. So, and then, yeah, one more question. What is an M-O? Oh, M-O is a, a, a acronym for method of operation, or modus operandi is the Latin. Just means uh, how you customarily do things, you know. So, it's, it's what's your normal uh, way of doing things, I guess is the way I would say it. Good question. All right. Well, awesome. Well, let's take a break. Uh, here. Those of you here, we will come back together for our morning service at 10 a.m., Those of you watching on live stream, the live stream typically kicks in about 1025 to 1030, somewhere in there, give or or take 5, 10 minutes. Uh, But we'll see you soon. Thanks. And that's our MO. That's our MO. Our MO is to start the service at 10. And, you know, then we have singing and so forth. And then eventually we have this this sermon.